go back to John chapter number 5, as we've been working our way through this particular chapter of the Gospel according to John, John chapter number 5, and we're going to just deal with verses 10 through 15. We're going to touch on verse 16 just briefly, Uh, but we've been kind of pulling this event apart. This is all still related to uh, the healing of the lame man who was at the pool of Bethesda. And of course, as we have watched that uh, unfold, uh, we have watched Jesus set his eyes upon this particular man in this group of hundreds of sick and maimed and blind. And he set his eyes upon him and he told him to take up his bed and walk. And the man obeyed the command of God. And uh, we saw the sovereign mercy of Christ in that very moment of uh, healing this man who'd been lame for some 38 years. And we see, as we look in verse number 10, that immediately after this, the Bible tells us that gives us a little bit of insight as to the date, uh, not date as far as year per se, but it shows us that this healing took place on the Sabbath. You see the end of verse number 9 of John chapter 5. It says, immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews, therefore, said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day, it is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. That's that's an important statement that this former lame man makes. Then ask they him, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And again, notice this statement, and he that was healed wist not or didn't know who it was, for Jesus had conveyed, conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. As we looked at this healing of this lame man, and we saw and continue to see clearly the sovereign mercy of God. But we see immediately, as in many of the miracles that Jesus performed, that he's often met with ridicule, he's met with criticism by those who refuse to acknowledge that Jesus Christ was exactly who he said he is. The, the Jews, the Pharisees specifically, uh, hated what Jesus stood for. They, they hated the fact that Jesus was, uh, would, would perform these miracles. And again, that leads you to ask the question, uh, who hates because a man performs miracles such as these? And yet that's what these Pharisees were doing. They were, they were ridiculing. But notice their criticism doesn't start with Jesus. Their criticism starts with the man that was healed. Imagine being that man who laid there by that pool for 38 years, waiting for the water to be troubled. And the first people that you see after your healing are these Pharisaical Jews that instead of rejoicing with you over your healing, they say, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. Uh, This is a a stretch, to say the least, of what they're accusing this man of, but I want you to notice the attitude of these Pharisees. Uh, They would not even simply rejoice in the man's healing. Uh, They were concerned about their man-made tradition, and by the way, they had turned the Sabbath, and they had turned the Sabbath day into something it was never intended to be. But you can see how they responded to him. Instead of rejoicing with this man, Instead of saying, it is thrilling what God has done, 
They want to know, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. Why are you carrying your bed? You see, this healing was on the Sabbath. And this is not the first or the last time that the Pharisees will question Jesus or one of his, the people that were formerly disabled or lame, whichever you'd like to use there. The Jews confront this man. They confront him instead of rejoicing. I was thinking about a lot of different applications today. I was thinking about a lot of things this week, and maybe some of these are unrelated, but I think how many times we can have that attitude. Uh, and this, is, this is just bonus material. We can have that attitude of Instead of rejoicing with someone because of something good or something that's wonderful that's happened in their life, we tend to have a, the wrong attitude about it. We tend to think, oh, why couldn't something good happen to me? I hope that's not our attitude. I hope that if we were to come across a man like this, we would rejoice with him and say, praise God, this man's been healed of this awful condition that he had. And we ought to rejoice with people when they, they acknowledge that Christ is their Savior. They've repented and they've believed the gospel. We ought to rejoice with them. And not immediately question, oh, by the way, do you realize you're doing that wrong? You know, we think about that. We see people converted and they get saved. And immediately we expect them to act as if they've got all their, all their theology in order. That they understand what it is to be a believer. What it is to live the Christian life. Some of us have been saved for many, many years. And we still don't know how to live the Christian life. We got to be very careful about telling other people, hey, you realize what you're doing. That's, that's not right. Now, Christ had spoken to this lame man. Let me ask you a question. This is an observation I made this week. Did Christ know he was healing on the Sabbath? <laughs> of course he did. did. Did Jesus at one, any moment say, you know what, I'm going to have to hold off on this healing until it's not the Sabbath day anymore? Just the fact that Jesus himself commanded this lame man to walk basically tells us something about the Lord. It tells us that Jesus Christ, and we'll see this as we study our Bibles, we'll find out that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And who are we... Who are these Jews to confront this man? And basically their beef is not with the healed man. Their beef is with Christ. They're using the carrying of this man, this man carrying his bed to try to get at Jesus about what Jesus has done. But by the way, if Jesus says it, Jesus was fully aware of what the Sabbath was. But he was also aware of what the Jews, the Pharisees, had turned it into. And in Jesus' day, the Sabbath was not being observed according to the God's way. It was being observed according to their traditions and the way they wanted it. You realize, if you study it out, you'll find out that this, what this man's doing according to the Jews, now get this, was a capital crime. Now think about that for a minute. This would have been considered a capital crime. He could have been put to death according to their standards for carrying a bed that Jesus told him to pick up and take. Who told him to pick up the bed? Jesus did. He said, take up thy bed and walk. Specifically, he didn't just say, hey, get up and leave the bed. He said, rise up, take up thy bed. In other words, remember I told you the bed would have probably been a, a, nothing more than a rolled out mat looking thing. He rolled that up and he took it with him. Jesus told him, get up, roll up your bed and walk. This lame man obeyed the command and the authority of God. Jesus, as the Lord of the Sabbath, these Pharisaical Jews scold him for allegedly breaking the law, breaking the Sabbath law, instead of rejoicing with this man who was healed. Now you notice again in verse number 10, it tells us, the Jews therefore said unto him that was cured. It is 
the Sabbath day. Christ knew full well what he was doing. He knew full well what the consequences would be when he told that man to pick up his bed and walk. Jesus has come to do something, and he's still doing this today, and I hope we get this principle today. When Jesus came, Jesus came to set people free from the religious zealots and the religious shackles that these Pharisees were putting on people. They were doing nothing more than creating a bondage. They were creating the yoke again. These Pharisees actually believed that they could keep the law and they had the audacity to look at you and say, you're not keeping all of the law. You deserve to die because you're violating the Sabbath. When every one of those Pharisees were guilty of violating God's law themselves. Jesus came to free us and free even this lame man from these traditional things that the Pharisees had turned the law into and had turned the Sabbath into. Christ never once, as far as I'm aware, gave in to public opinion. He never once said, I'm going to do something because the public will support it, or I'm going to do it because the public won't support it. Jesus acted on his own authority. If he said it, just like we said, there was no questioning when the lame man said, are you sure I can get up and walk? Are you sure? Jesus said, get up. He got up immediately. It's the authority of Christ. Folks, there are thousands of people today. I'm talking thousands, maybe more than that. There are thousands of people today who need to be reminded that God has not left us in bondage. He has not left us in these religious yokes of bondage that people are trying to put people into. There's, there's, this is not saying there is not the, the, the laws of God. But we are entrapping people often with our own thoughts and our own mentality as to what we believe the way it ought to be. I love what Paul, when he wrote in the book of Galatians, chapter number 5, verse 1, he said, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Look, it's one thing to be regulated by the Scriptures. It's one thing to say, I want to be obedient to the Word of God, and knowing that all I want to do is I want to please God with my life. I want God to be pleased with my life. But you know what? When we're concerned about pleasing God and not pleasing man, we will think little of what other people think about it. We're not going to be so concerned about what does this Pharisee over here think about what's happening here. And I like this, this man that was healed. Notice again, after the Pharisee's time in verse number 10, it's not lawful for these to carry thy bed. Look at his response. He answered them, he that made me whole. Notice who the lame, the lame man gives credit to. He who made me whole. What did he do? The same said unto me, the same man who made me whole is the same man that told me, take up thy bed and walk. Notice he gives credit that his healing was not of his own. His healing came from this man. Now he says this man because he doesn't realize still, remember, he does not realize that this is Jesus Christ himself. He's going to say in a moment, he doesn't even really know who he was. He knew he was a prophet of some sort, but he had no idea that this man was Jesus himself. The Jews being more concerned for their traditions and their religious customs, their perversion of the law, the perversion of the restrictions of all that they had put, instead of being concerned and rejoiced in the miracle that had been performed. 
The very thing that will do that, folks, is when you become blinded by your own self-righteousness, when you begin to believe that you set the standard for what righteousness is instead of saying God sets the standard. Self-righteousness is what the Pharisees were marked by. They had a belief that somehow their standards were right, their work was right, what they were saying, what they were doing. They believed that this is the way God says it. And yet the Pharisees, they were twisting and corrupting God's word. No compassion. The Pharisees had no compassion for the man who was healed. They had no interest in God's sovereign mercy. They had no interest in God's grace. Notice they don't ask the questions about who healed you, what happened. They immediately pointed out, you're breaking the law because you're carrying a bed. You see, that's what, that's what religious self-righteousness will get you. More concerned about the externals than understanding exactly what's happening here. He answered them in verse 11, He that made me whole the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Sets an example for us. How simply this former crippled man meets the critics. He doesn't try to defend himself. He doesn't enter into an argument with them about their perverted view of the Sabbath. He doesn't charge them. He says, why don't you, why don't you uh, feel rejoice with me? Why don't you be happy for me? He simply says, there was a man, the same man that made me whole, told me to get up and walk, and that's what I did. Folks, what an example. What an example. In a day and age when we're so concerned about being right, we're so concerned about someone seeing it our way, this man simply says, you know what, Jesus commanded me, or this man commanded me, the same man that healed me, and I obeyed. What's interesting, remember, is when Jesus first dealt with this man, this man didn't come seeking after Jesus. Jesus set his eyes upon him. That's a tremendous difference. The man believed that the same one who had healed him, he believed he was some sort of a prophet. The text tells us as we've been studying this, but what he did, he did by divine authority. Therefore, he obeyed regardless of the tradition. Now, you, say, you might say today, I don't ever encounter anything like this. I don't, I've, I've never had these kind of deals where I've had to feel like I'm defending myself. We do this all the time. We're, we're constantly, if we really trust the divine authority of God, then stand on his divine authority and quit trying to argue and make everything so people see your point of view. Just simply say, look, this is what God's word says. This is what I've done. And I am not interested in pleasing you. I'm only interested in pleasing God. And to that, you're going to receive criticism. You're, you're going to have people tell you, hey, wait a minute. Wait, wait just a minute. No, I'm doing this by the divine authority of God. This man got up, took up his bed, Jesus fully aware it's the Sabbath day, and he obeyed the command of God. Now notice the interaction gets a little bit deeper. The, then they asked him, or then asked they him, what man is that which said unto thee, take up thy bed and walk? Now are they asking because they want to go and congratulate this man? No. Are they asking so they can go and shake his hand and say, thank you for healing this man? Of course not. This illustrates the fact that they simply, they simply wanted to get to Jesus. They wanted to get to him because they've got him. They, they've set out to get him from day one. 
But notice what he says. What man is that which said unto thee, take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was. You've never used that phrase, wist not, I know. Never once in a conversation did you, did, have you ever said, I wist not. I don't know. He says, I don't know who he was. Now, again, think about this in the divine sovereignty of God. A lame man is healed by a man he doesn't even know. He's healed. He's told to walk. He obeys the divine authority of God, never once knowing. He said, I have no idea who this man was. There's a lesson in that. But also, I think there's this principle. Just going all the way back to the Pharisees that are saying it's not lawful for you to carry your bed, here's the opposite of an example of a man. We ought not expect people to fully understand, okay, now I'm going to live a different life. I'm going to, I'm going to immediately not be what I once was. Here we see this man. This man had been healed. He had obeyed the command of the the man who had healed him, but yet he still is not fully understanding the divine glory of Christ. Folks, understand something that as we grow in our faith and we grow in life as a believer, it grows and we become more acquainted with he who has redeemed us. We become more acquainted with the Savior who's died for us. This man knows next to nothing about who Christ is, yet he's been healed. He's obeyed the divine authoritative command, and yet he still says, I have no idea who this man was. Why? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. That's also very telling. Jesus performed this miracle in front of a multitude of people. Jesus did not stand around and say, look what I've done. He didn't say, give me honor, I've healed this man. He conveyed himself away. Simply means he disappeared. He left where he was. He went, disappeared from the crowd. What's he doing? Well, first of all, he's not giving himself, which he is rightful. He has a right to, by the way. Jesus had every right in the world to stand up and demand and say, give me glory for what I've just done. But he didn't. In humility, away he went. The man's unable to tell him. He doesn't know who he is. The Lord disappears into this crowd of people. This brings out, really, it's the evidences of Jesus. And this is kind of laying the foundation of what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks as we consider uh, the seven proofs of Christ's deity. But this is that first example of this. This is an example of Jesus himself showing his divine authority. He ministered without any attempt to impress people. He ministered without a desire to become popular with the crowd. Instead of looking for honor and popularity, he turned away from it. All he left behind him, instead of advertising himself, he turned and left the man who had been healed. Folks, in our own walk, in our own faith, in Christ, He has left us. We are to reflect the glory of Christ in our lives. That's what we're left here to do. 
We reflect His glory when we proclaim His name. We reflect His glory when we speak highly of who He is and what He's done for us. This man simply doesn't know. After the Lord had healed him, this great crowd, Jesus disappears. The man couldn't even turn and say, it was that man over there. It was, oh, there he goes. He never sees him. But then verse 14 gives us another one of those connecting words. Afterward, Jesus findeth him. Where did he find him? He found him in the temple. What was he doing there in the temple? We're not, we're not told what he's doing in the temple, but we do know this. Jesus finds him. Jesus goes back to where he is. He goes back to the man that he had healed. And now he finds himself face to face with the man who he had just moments before had given him the ability to walk again. What's happening here? Well, you see, first of all, you see Jesus gives him a first, really the first test of what we'll call a test of grace. This test of whether or not grace had actually found him. Now, Jesus knows. But remember, often it's him, he's testing us. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more. Notice the connection between Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The Lord finds him in the temple, tells him to sin no more, or in other words, to walk, do not walk in sin anymore. Do not walk in corrupt things. The opposite of walking not in sin is to walk in righteousness, to walk in faith, walk in the light of Christ. But he makes an interesting statement. He says, lest the worst thing come unto thee. There's a lot of good men. There's a lot of good commentators. There's a lot of good preachers who have, from there, they cover the whole scope of what was Jesus actually telling him. There's a, I'm not going to give you necessarily the man who said it, but he's not the only one that said it. Regarding this, he believed, he believed that this man had, had his physically had been healed, but his, his soul, he still was not saved. And he's calling him to repentance. But it's clear, and he says this, it's clear that the man's body had been healed, but his soul had not yet been saved. And that the worst thing he's talking about here was that God's eternal judgment is going to be worse than the 38 years that you spent as a cripple. In other words... Many good men say this was a call to repentance. Sin no more. Others took the approach that said Jesus was simply saying, apply the truth that you've now been enlightened with. What does that mean? Well, we have verses when it says sin no more that Jesus was speaking to his conscience. Folks, being saved by grace doesn't ignore that there is a holy life God expects you to live. And that holiness, Paul even made mention of it in 1 Corinthians 15, 34, when he said, awake to righteousness and sin not. 
That's the standard that's set before somebody who's been saved by grace is, listen, uh, remember the righteousness that you have and walk not in sin, but walk in righteousness. And we can take either one of those approaches. We could say, all right, if we're talking about this man's eternal soul, we're talking about a call to repentance, which we would fully believe. He's standing before Jesus, the one who had saved him, repent of his sin, believe the gospel, believe Christ. But also on the other side, remember, as a child of God, there is a standard that God sets. Grace doesn't mean we have a license to do whatever we want to do when we want to do it. There's still a command to live a holy life. It is true that there is still a government of God that commands us. If the sinner dies in his sins without Christ, he will spend an eternity in hell. But for the believer who continues to sin or a believer that sins, there is chastisement. There is a punishment for our continuing sin. Now maybe we know it's not eternal condemnation for those that are in Christ, but to think I can still commit sin and get away with it, well, we understand that cannot be the case. The Lord finds him in this temple and tells him, walk differently, live differently. There's a passage of Scripture over in the book of Hebrews that tells us in Hebrews chapter number 10, verses 38 and 39. The Bible says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, or back into sin, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Now, Paul, I believe, is the author of the book of Hebrews, is preparing the reader for what's going to happen in chapter number 11, which is about faith, about living life. Faith is what faith is, and we have the faith hall of fame, if you will, all these men that were men and women who were, who were called faithful. But notice that there is this statement that says, of them that believe. This, this is this picture of perseverance. This is Jesus, we could say, is telling that man, uh, persevere in the faith. Keep at it. But he says there's a difference. We are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them that believe the saving of the soul. That verse very clearly tells me that there are those who have some form of some form of acknowledgement, but yet they draw back into the very sin in which they were in bondage to. But he says, Paul says, you're not of them. You're of the ones who have believed that a saving of the soul. Now we could sit here today and say, well, I know what Jesus meant in John chapter number five, and I know exactly what he was saying. And I'd be interested to hear you give me that because I'm, I'm not 100% sure exactly what he's telling them. But I do know this, the principles are exactly the same. He's telling this man something has, something has changed. Do not continue in sin. Another preacher said this is evidence that this man's, this man's ailment was as a result of sin. 
In other words, Jesus is telling him, the reason that you had this to begin with is because of sin in your life. Again, I'm not going to stand here dogmatically and tell you I believe that all, which one of those, but I do believe the principle is very clear here that when, when you've met Jesus, when Jesus has found you, there is a difference. There's a difference in your life. Now, the Bible says this does not go on. There was no back and forth here. This is what's interesting to me. This lame man doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't question, what do you mean by that? Look what it says. The man departed. Now, I don't know about you. I've already presented to you three, at least three questions. This man asked nothing. Jesus says, Go and sin no more, lest a worse thing comes unto you. The man departs. But I love this. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus. (laughs) Now, from what I'm seeing, from what I'm seeing scripturally, when Jesus finds him in the temple, he doesn't introduce himself to the man and say, Hello, I'm Jesus. Your Bible does, I hope your Bible doesn't give a, an explanation that that's not there. He doesn't, he doesn't introduce himself. He doesn't tell the former lame man, hey, by the way, I'm Jesus. But the man knew who he was. Two verses earlier, the Jews ask him, who was it that healed you? And he says, I have no idea. I didn't see him. Now the question's asked by the Jews. Or he goes and tells the Jews. By the way, look, look at the way it's worded. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus. Some would say he went and found the Jews who had questioned him and he said, by the way, you asked me who it was? It was Jesus. Now what's interesting is again, because of what the man says, we'll deal with this next week in verse 16, and therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus. In other words, as a direct result of the former lame man telling them it was Jesus that healed him, immediately they set forth to persecute Jesus. Now, let's use some human reasoning this morning. We could say, we could say something like this. Well, that sure sounds like the former healed man kind of just betrayed Jesus. He just turned him in. Human logic says, wait a minute, why would you? But here's the reality. We understand that what this man was actually doing is he was acting under the divine authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Folks, this is the evidence. This is the proof of the deity of God. When Jesus Christ made a difference in this man's life, when he made him whole, we see that this entire divine authority, we see this man who had been healed now confessing with his lips the very person who had saved him. It was Jesus. When someone says, tell me about how you got saved, it was Jesus. Tell me about your healing. What did you do? Where did you go? What did you say? It was Jesus that saved me. There, there is, this man is doing, has said very little. And yet, by speaking those words, it was Jesus. He helped set off what ends up being a nearly merciless pursuit by the Jews towards Jesus. He acknowledged who it was. It would seem that as soon as 
Jesus had revealed himself to this new convert, we'll call him. It's almost as if he went right back to the people who had asked him the question and told him, I want to go ahead and answer that question now. It was Jesus. It was Jesus. All he's doing is asking the question they had asked him earlier. But then notice, we'll lay this foundation for next week. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him. Okay? Sought to slay him. Why? Here's the reason. Because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. That's what they're going with. That's their whole argument. Let's persecute Jesus because he did this healing on the Sabbath day. He's being accused of a high crime as divine authority declaring and healing a man on the Sabbath day. And the very reason that they're doing that is because it's on the Sabbath day. What Jesus is going to do all the way down through verse number 30, as he speaks to the Jews, he is going to proclaim his divine authority and his divine right to do as he pleases. Now think about this. Jesus can do as he pleases and not violate the actual word of God. You need to keep that in mind. This is not the first or the last healing that Jesus does on a Sabbath day. He's being accused of breaking the Sabbath. He's only breaking what the Jews had conjured up in their mind as to what the Sabbath was all about. Therefore, the Jews sought to slay him. He did these things. Folks, this is a picture of the carnal mind. This is a picture of the mind that is enemy towards God. Here's a man, even in its its simplest sense, if you were to come face to face with a person who had been crippled for 38 years, think about this, human decency. Even human decency alone rejoices that this man has had a cure. I mean, that's just, that's human decency. And yet, these Pharisees don't even have human decency. Why? Because they hate the man who did it. And yet, they're the religious experts of the day, yet they hate Christ. Folks, don't let religion become the mantra. Don't let the outward become the only thing that matters. Don't let what you think ought to be when Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Sabbath. He is the divine authority. Here, this man who's been afflicted, he's laying by that pool helplessly. Now, all of a sudden, he's told, rise up and walk by the quickening word of God. He carries his bed. He walks. The cure was perfect. A wonderful miracle has been performed. And yet, you've got those who say, let's kill the man who healed him because he did it on the Sabbath day. Let me give you another view of this. How frightening is it? How frightening is it to you to put yourself up against the Lord of the Sabbath? In other words, I know what he's done, I know what he's done, but here's what I think. Think about that. This is Almighty God, and you say, Jesus doesn't have the right to heal on the Sabbath day. 
Folks, I don't know about you, but that's a frightening thing for me to stand and say, oh, I know better than Jesus, so if Je- he, he did something wrong. That's what the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of, that Jesus had done something wrong. I wouldn't dare put myself in a place of criticizing Christ and what he chooses to do. Who were the Jews really murmuring against? The man that was healed, or are they murmuring against God? They're murmuring against God. Folks, the carnal mind is always enemy with God. The mind that is without Christ will always be adversarial against God. You know what this really shows us in the Pharisees? It shows us really how deep the depravity of man really is. That a depraved man will actually try to stand toe-to-toe with the Lord of the Sabbath and tell him what you're doing is wrong. Can you imagine being the one to bring an accusation against Christ saying you've broken the law? (laughs) It's a scary thought. He who knows no sin. Could Jesus have done anything sinful? No. Was anything in this act on that day sinful? No, because he was behind it all. Yet the Pharisees are the first one, the religious hypocrites of the day are the first one to try to cast the first stone and say, we're going to catch him and we're going to bring him up on charges of violating the Sabbath. How it demonstrates the need a man has of a Savior. But also for the person who's already been saved, it ought to demonstrate and reveal to you once again the amazing grace of which God has provided to you. If you're saved today, it's no less of a miracle. It's no less of a miracle that you don't think the way these Pharisees think. It's no less of a working of God that you don't have the same attitude that these Pharisees had. It's a miracle. You say, preacher, I've never been healed of a physical ailment that I'm aware of. You've been healed of the greatest ailment you ever had spiritually, and that was... You had a need of a Savior. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so was I. We should learn as believers this morning these lessons that Christ gave this crippled man healing before the man ever asked for it. The man never once asked specifically for Jesus to heal. Remember, the man was waiting for the troubling of the water. Folks, many people who receive physical or material blessings from Christ never, ever, ever acknowledge Him with a life of repentance. It simply becomes, God, can you be my blessing giver? When I need something, can you provide? But I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to, I'm not going to live a, a righteous, holy life. I just kind of want you to be there when trouble comes. Folks, this is the very mark of Christianity today. You want to get people mad, tell them to repent. You want to, I mean, I'm not, talking, I'm not talking people outside. I'm talking about people in churches. Tell them they need to repent of their sin. And it's like, it's like you're insulting them. But if you stand up and tell them, hey, Jesus will provide every one of the blessings that you need. Boy, people will flock to that. And by the way, Jesus has never left us in want. But he's also commanded us that there's supposed to be a difference. This repentant life 
Having Jesus is not about just having physical health and it's not just about having material blessings. That's called the prosperity gospel. And by the way, you say, what are the most dangerous religions in the world? Is it Islam? Is it Hindu? What is it? Prosperity gospel is just as dangerous because you're proclaiming that coming to Jesus makes all your problems go away. And yet, uh, uh, soul still damned because there's no repentance. We see that you might be able to say today, look, I, God's given me a lot of earthly blessings. He's, he's blessed me more than I ever deserved. But what does it mean to you when I say those words, the same words that Jesus said? Again, I'm not going to be dogmatic about what this was, and I want you to think about it. If you're a believer today, okay, I'll talk to you as believers first. What do those words that Jesus said to that man, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto you. What does that mean to you as a believer? I'm not going to give you the answer. What's it mean to you? Because as a child of God, it ought to mean something. Jesus is still speaking to you just as much as he's speaking to this former lame man. I am he who's made you whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. You could say the same thing to a person who today is, by their own proclamation, is an unbeliever. That same phrase ought to mean something to the unbeliever. What an amazing thought that Jesus, when he gives the words, we can simply ask ourselves, where do you see yourself? Where do I see myself in this narrative? Where do I, where, where am I? Am I being confronted by Jesus as an unbeliever or am I being convicted by Jesus as my Savior? Because that's really what this comes down to. Because today, you're either converted or you're unconverted. It's either or today. You're not almost converted. You're not almost unconverted. You're either saved or you're unsaved. You're either a believer or an unbeliever. You're not almost anything. You are one of those two. And Jesus, as he tells this former lame man, remember, he's acting on divine authority. Next week, we'll look at those verses. We'll begin looking at these verses that'll show us seven proofs of the deity of Christ. There's seven proofs that he gives himself. Jesus will launch out into a dissertation to these Jews who've come to persecute him. And he will give them his authority. Now again, we like to believe that just because he speaks authority that everybody bows to him. And we see that just like many other times, it'll make the Jews even more irate with him. But this healing on a Sabbath, it kind of sets the foundation for what Jesus is going to do. And by the way, he's going to say these words. I, I'm, I'm hesitant to begin this, but I like this. Jesus, he says in verse 18, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he, had, he not only had broken the Sabbath, but also said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So now they say, we got, him on, we got him on two counts. One, he broke the Sabbath. Two, he says he's equal with God. And yet both of those things, God did 
no breaking, and God is, Jesus is equal with God the Father. That's his deity. All right, let's stand all right.